Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 134 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I've been excited for a long time to bring you this episode and a couple of guests. In fact, this has been about, I think, a year in the making. It was about a year ago that Warren Bird let me know that he and Carl George were re-releasing and updating a book that I've probably talked about more than any other leadership book in the church world. Just it's sort of my number one referral for people. And it's something that I came across when I was a young leader back in the mid-1990s, starting out in three very stuck, declining, and then suddenly rapidly growing mainline churches. And we became very fast growing and we went from like a handful in attendance to 100, to 150, to 200, and eventually in that church went on to be seven or 800 on the weekend. And um, I was trying to figure out how to break church growth barriers. And for, I can't even remember how I got it, but I picked up the very first edition of How to Break Church Growth Barriers by Carl George and Warren Bird. And it doesn't teach you how to grow your church. It just shows you some of the barriers you're going to run into if your church is growing. And I use that book again and again and again. Led my elders through it, led our team through it, learned the principles, have taught those principles. And Warren told me a year ago, hey, Carrie, uh, we're re-releasing the book. And I was so excited. If you're a reader of my blog, just at kerryneuhoff.com or leadlikeneverbefore.com, if you're even a semi-regular reader, you've probably seen me uh, link to that book because I'm so passionate about it. It was so helpful to me. And so Carl and Warren are back to talk about those principles, how to break the 200, 400, 600, 800,000 barrier and beyond, and also how they've updated the book. So I think you're going to find it super, super helpful. I really hope it helps you wherever you find yourself. Hey, there's a couple of things I want to let you know about. Uh, first of all, we got a handful of tickets left for the Rethink Leadership event happening later this month in April. Can you believe it's April already? Ah, how did that happen? And in just a few weeks, we're gathering for Rethink Leadership, April 26th through 28th. So make sure you go to rethinkleadership.com. If you are not yet planning on going, don't miss it. We're going to have Bob Goff there John Acuff, Reggie Joyner, Kara Powell, I'm going to speak, lots of others, Clay Scroggins, Jeff Henderson, so on and so forth. It's going to be an incredible few days, and I would love for you to be part of it. Also got a handful, just a handful of tickets left for the Canadian Church Leaders Conference. And again, would love for you to be part of that. You can go to Canadian Church Leaders Conference dot com for more information. And uh, well, that one may already be sold out by this time. So you'll have to go check it out yourself. And then finally, for those of you who are passionate about having amazing volunteer teams and who isn't. And when I talk to leaders, recruiting, keeping, training volunteers, huge issue for a lot of church leaders. Our friends at trainedup.org just made training so much easier because if you're trying to gather people in person, half the people show up, half the people don't, or maybe you get 100% of the people to show up and then you have five new volunteers next week. Are you going to hold a training event just for them? Well, what if you actually delivered your training online? Uh, what if you just did it and then trained up, got it into the hands of everybody on your team? I mean, they are now seeing people who have 100% of their volunteers trained, 
90% of their volunteers trained, onboarding has become so much easier, and they've got a price plan to fit a church of every budget. So if you haven't checked them out yet, just head on over to trainedup.org and uh, check it out. I think it's going to help you do a better job leading your church. Hey, I also want to thank all of you who just continue to reach out. I get like cards and letters and emails and those of you who leave reviews on iTunes and elsewhere, just thank you so much. I saw a review on iTunes the other day, so I just want to give a shout out to Chrissy Velasquez. Chrissy says, I'm a young woman in a unique leadership role outside of the local church, and I found this podcast hitting the nail on the head so often. It's changed the way I lead and has also given me a new perspective on the leaders I'm under, both in my career and in my church. Thanks for investing in the new kids, Carrie. Well, I may have been at this for a few years, Chrissy, but I got to tell you, I still feel like a new kid, and I'm glad this is helping you. And I hear from a lot of you who are working in the marketplace and who are finding this helpful as well. And if that's you, why don't you share it with some friends, you know, share it on social media, uh, email the link to friends, whatever you need to do. And I just want you to know what a privilege it is to be able to help so many of you every week. So without further ado, and these scale rules, I think they work inside your church. So if you're managing a department, you know, just think about this. If you got 200 people under you, it's going to be totally different than if you have 20. If you have a thousand people reporting to you, totally different than if you had 10. So to help us with that, here's my conversation with Carl George and Warren Bird. Well, Carl and Warren, first, uh, I just want to say welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm so glad to have you guys and a huge thank you. I think you guys both know by now, I think one of the first things I said to you, Warren, because I met you first was, and this was like, what, we met six, seven years ago. I don't know. It was a while ago. But it was like, thank you, thank you, thank you, man. When you and Carl wrote that book, How to Break Church Growth Barriers, I discovered it in the late 90s, a year or two into my first experience as a, as a lead pastor. And uh, I, it was my handbook. It's like everything I did, I just like followed you. And, 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 you know, surprise, surprise, it didn't tell you how to grow your church. But the book is all about when your church grows, here are the barriers that you're going to run into. And I probably have recommended and given that book away. In fact, when I was preparing for this, I realized I gave yet another copy away. So <laughs> I'm copyless. I'll have to wait for the new one. Man, I just, I just want to say thank you so much because it helped me. And I am so thankful to be able to do this podcast and to see that you're re-releasing the book now, the 2017 edition, and it's getting get into the hands of a brand new generation of leaders. So exciting. Yes, thank you for your your wonderful endorsement. I was just uh, sharing with Warren the uh, the copy that the Baker, the Baker uh, Publishing House has sent to us, and your recommendation, Carrie, is right on the back cover, and I, I That's love amazing. it. That's amazing. When I began in ministry as a young leader, I lived by this book as our church grew from a handful of people to 200, and then over the years to over 1,000. Everything Carl George and Warren Bird said was bang on every step of the way. Well, now, we can't ask for a nicer statement than that. Thank you. Well, it's 100% true, and it was an honor to be asked to endorse the book. And if I was ever on the Tim Ferriss podcast and he asked me, what is the book that you have most recommended or most gifted most often, it would be yours. So thank you. I, I, just, I just think it's something that should be in every church leader's library. And, and it just, you know what, it just answers so many of the questions we think there are no answers to. And it helps, so... Welcome, Carl, and welcome, Warren. Thank you. At, at Fuller, we were 
uh, at the institute there, we were in touch with lots of pastors of lots of different sizes of churches, and and we created a whole series of seminars to deal with the different scale issues that pastors received at, at, and had to overcome at 200, 400, 800, and so forth. And Warren uh, was always collaborating with me and, and something other, and he said, we have got to get this in the hands of more people. And uh, Warren, you, you recall those conversations perhaps better than I do. Well, yes, I enjoyed uh, listening because I got to introduce you for as you go around the country and, and teach. And I think, OK, you told this story best at this conference and you told this story <laughs> best at this conference. And I just took the best of the best of your 200 barrier conference, your 400, your 800 and so forth and uh, turn it into a book. And it's not only done so well over the years that the publisher came to us and said, you know, hey, how about if you update it for a new generation? We'll recover it. You make sure that to incorporate social media and other things that needed to uh, uh, have emerged since then. And uh, and uh, let's have a new life for the book. What year was it released? Do you remember? Was that 93, 94, 92? 1994. 1994. Wow. So, I mean, Internet was dial up. Email was just starting to catch on. Right. Internet was dial-up only for a few scientists. It did not take off for a few more years, so it would dial-up at that point. I think I got on email in 95, 96, mm -hmm. early adopter, and my first email address was carrie at planeteer.com. I have no idea what Planeteer was or where it went. You can, you can email me there at this address. It'll just come up dead, I'm sure. But yeah, a lot has changed in 20 years, right? Now, have the core principles and the core problems you're addressing in the book, have they changed? Like when you were adopting it, what did you need? Like 23 years is a long time. What did you change? What, what, what did you, what really didn't stand the test of time? A uh, bus ministry. We downplayed a little bit. <laughs> you got rid of bus ministry. Okay. Well, re remember, uh, yeah. if you go back about three churches ago in terms of what was the largest attendance in the United States uh, church or Canada, yeah. bus ministry would have been the driving force and the church before that and the church before that. So bus ministry had a very long, amazing life as a um, feeder into the church, but there are new feeders. <laughs> the whole subject of church growth uh, had been in the hands, basically, of Southern Baptists. Uh, since the 1920s. That is, if uh, there, there were two great movements of churches growing in the U.S. from from the early part of the century in the 1920s when the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist was organized, and they took Sunday School technology to a whole new level and put it everywhere and became the largest uh, Protestant denomination on the basis of it. And then along in the 40s came the latter end movement of the Assemblies of God and the, the emergence of, get this, new technology, radio, Right. And contemporary music. And so the Baptists took training laymen through literature and through Sunday school quarterlies to a whole new level. And the assemblies people took and, and the healing evangelists or Robertson, those came along at the same time. But they took the, the, the radio medium and created a huge media tent over the whole country uh, covering uh, supernatural Christianity. In a, mm -hmm. in a way that Baptists and Presbyterians were uncomfortable in doing. Uh, but that became the world theme of Christianity, was a Christianity being pushed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but those are the two, great, the two great movements that we have 
seen in our lifetime. Now, the Southern Baptists had a, a side issue that we have to deal with, and the Southern Baptists created a closely graded Sunday school. And as it turns out, when we study the history of church growth, the closely graded Sunday school, when it when it reaches its full implementation with uh, a boys and girls class for every age level, pops out a church at something under 900. Okay. And when you looked at Southern Baptist churches, there weren't a half a dozen churches in the whole country that exceeded 900 because once mm. they got that fully graded Sunday school fully loaded, they started planting other churches in the suburbs and doing other things, and they stopped pushing forward. The bus people broke that mindset and said, you don't have to stay under a thousand. And the bus people all over the country were the ones who broke the barrier to go beyond a thousand. And they took the lid right off. It, it, the, the next ceiling that had to be broken after the bus people got finished was the ceiling broken by Paul Yonggi Cho, uh, David Cho in, in Korea and some of the other major international churches where they went into the hundreds of thousands and showed us what small groups could do if they were properly implemented. So we, we've we've watched these things. Uh, there's nothing yet in the U.S. That, that touches what's been done in the international scene, but these new churches emphasizing uh, cells and uh, branch churches are coming closer to it in terms of announced numbers, but we still don't have a church of 100,000 in the U.S. Hey, that's incredible perspective. We have a lot of young leaders who listen, like under 35, and they'd be like, bus ministry? Like, I don't even remember that. But yeah, you're right. And and I think it's really important to study the trends. And I think what you would say is that in some ways, and this is sort of the big principle of the book, it's it's the systems that break at certain barriers, right? Or the way you do ministry. If you have the fully graded Sunday school system that naturally maxes out at 900, well, then a bus ministry can change that. Or if that will take you to two or 3,000, but you don't have any way to care for people, small groups are infinitely scalable. And we all can think of large churches that have you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people, and they're connected not through pastoral care on church staffs, but really through small groups, right? And so it's often the systems things that break not the passion, not the vision, not the prayer, not faith, which is which is so interesting. Yeah, Carrie, you're making the assumption, yes, the book yeah. does affirm all the systems you've said, but so much of what has to begin is in the pastor's head if it's not there already. Hmm. Do we really have a, a vision for the harvest? And yeah. do I, as the leader, have I dealt with my issues to be needed to be at the center of every photograph, to be that the, the, the hub of every spoke, to be the primary caregiver of the church? Because there are a lot of pastors who, for whatever reason, see themselves as, oh, I'm supposed to be the primary caregiver. Right. And until that idea theologically and practically is released, and until there's a passion to say, you know, God has many more souls that he wants to entrust into the care of our church. Until that fuel is there, all the techniques in the world do you no good. Now, in, in to that end, because that's really where you spent a lot of time in the original edition of the book talking about, and I think the metaphor you used is shepherd versus rancher, right? That a lot of pastors see themselves as a shepherd 
and that in a growing church, you have to be a rancher. You're not in charge of the sheep. You are in charge of the people who are in charge of the sheep, etc. You know, to, to, to see that. Has that changed a lot? Or do you think a lot of pastors still see themselves as the primary caregiver, uh, the person through which it's almost a chaplaincy model of ministry, right? Where everything flows through the pastor. Is that still prevalent in a good number of churches today? Uh, yes and yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's that hasn't a changed. Of churches that the pastors love to be touching the sheep. Mm-hmm. It's also true that in some churches, pastors are learning that the ministry is multiplied if they'll give it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the back cover of the book, the endorsement by Rick Warren is an interesting one because he's one of the largest churches in, in North America. It sure is. And he says this. He says the whole goal of ministry is to give it away to more and more people. In Saddleback's early years, Rick says, I invited our people into a covenant. I said, if you'll do the ministry, I'll make sure you're well fed. That Hmm. turning point transformed our church and led to a season of incredible growth. This excellent book shows you how to make a similar transition. So what we're talking about is not really a secret, except to the people who are not applying the truth (laughs) that you can multiply your ministry through creating under shepherds. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the 200 barrier is so difficult to break? And that is the number one barrier in church world. What I don't know what the current stat is, but something like 80 to 90% of churches never make it past 200 in weekly attendance. Why do you think that barrier is so hard? And that stat is that 80% of North American churches, if you hit the, if you pass 200 in attendance, you are at the 80% mark. Um, okay. And it has to do in part with single cell versus multiple cells. That people okay. find their identity in the whole rather than in a unit within the whole. Hmm. And until people find that uh, that smaller group, then as the bigger group grows, it's like, well, we don't know everyone anymore. And I right. don't know, you know and, and my seat gets taken and all these things that we're used to because we're, we're thinking that we have to know everybody. The concept of the single cell, that Warren points out, is, a, is an excellent concept because it also ties in with one pastor. One pastor can confer with himself and keep himself up to speed on what he's thinking and doing. He doesn't have to have committee skills. He doesn't have to have communication skills. He just has to think things through. And mm. he can operate that one group. But the, but, but the reality is, what what Warren talked about, people have, have the idea that they have to know everything that's going on. And that's why moving from one worship service to two worship services is very frequently the key to breaking out of that, that mold. Because when you go to a second worship service, then the church pillars, the matriarchs and the patriarchs, find themselves unable to shut down stuff that they don't want to see happen. And they <laughs> second cell or the second worship service is actually the marker that when you cross that threshold, you're now in an area where no one person or or one small group of people can prevent you from growing from there, unless, of course, they can unseat the minister and get rid of him in time uh, so he hasn't spoiled their small game. So what do you do if you have a matriarch or patriarch? Because, I mean, even Lyle Schaller, before you guys... I remember reading one of his books, and he talked about matriarchs and patriarchs. And I can take you back 
to the three little churches I start at, it started at part of a mainline denomination. When I got your book, I, I would never do this, but I could name publicly who the matriarchs were. They were all matriarchs in this case. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say matriarch, patriarch. There's almost two at one church. But, and those are what you mean by that is those are the people, whether they're on the board or not, who really run the show, right? The, like nothing, everything has to have the approval of Mrs. X or Mr. X. And resenting them is the biggest mistake a pastor leader can make. Okay, say more about that, because I think every pastor who has a matriarch already resents them. Absolutely, they do, and uh, they resent them in color. So <laughs> what has to happen is we have to, we have to recognize the fact that these people are faithful. Whatever else they have going for them, they're faithful. Hmm. And they are in there for the long haul, for their life. The pastor is there while he's there to make another call. These people will bury all their friends in that context. And so to resent them is really immature. But many pastors don't have the level of emotional maturity required to recognize that these people can be your greatest allies. Now, some of those people are in trouble spiritually. Yeah. They have they have issues. It may be demonization issues. It may be uh, ignorance issues. It may be, there could be any number of issues. They, they may have made covenants that they shouldn't have made, and, and that, that hampers the church goes forward. But we get into this in the berry bucket theory, where we, where we learn that all of your members do not see you through the same lens, or they do not all appreciate you in the same way. And we try to teach people to be discerning of who your members are, whether it's a patriarch or matriarch, or whether it's people who've been there a long time and are influenced by them, or people who are new to the church because you're there or whatever. And we sort that out along our, our so-called berry bucket theory, hmm. in which we teach a pastor, pay attention to who it is that you're talking to. Who do these people see you to be? What kind of permissions do they think you need from them for you to be able to carry the day with your ideas? And until until a pastor has some notion that all members are not equal and that each one of them has a unique history, a unique background, a unique contribution to make and starts respecting that, he will not have the cooperation of the people he needs to, to carry the political agenda forward. Yeah. Can you explain the berry bucket theory just in brief for listeners who haven't read the book? Let me give a, a quick summary yeah. uh, and then Carl can amplify. The gist is, with those who are older than you or who are or who have been there longer, they want you to come alongside and ask permission mm -hmm. because they've, they've known the story. They've been there. They've tried that. And they are the ones who hold the keys, the keys to the church office, the church treasury, the church uh, kitchen, so forth. The younger ones, those that are, have come after you and are younger, and many of them have come to the Lord through your ministry, they might confuse you with God. If you say, let's, you know, Saturday morning, let's let's all do this at the food kitchen. Um, they're the first in line. They're the yeah. energy. And and the key, I, I did a book uh, on, on Lyle Schaller, who you mentioned, called uh, that highlighted his different teachings. And he used the word ally mm. almost more than any word in describing the relationships a pastor needs to have with the rest of the church. And that is you build allies with the opinion leaders in both groups. And as Carl has said just a minute ago, you lead them in different ways. Hmm, that's good to know. Now, in my case, when I came to the original churches, 
everybody would have been in that first category. They were all older than me, and they'd all been there longer than me. And you really need them, right? You can't, you, you, you need them. And interestingly enough, two of the patriarchs, matriarchs are not alive anymore, but one is still part of our church today, which is pretty amazing. It got tense at one point, uh, but she decided that the mission was the most important thing. And I mean, she's amazing. I put my arm around her yesterday at church. It was great. Yes, yes. And you had the wisdom to recognize the contribution these people made. Yeah. You have to honor, we used to call them the originals. These are the people, you know, when the church got big and all that, these are, these are the people who, who paved the way. They're the pioneers. They're the sacrificers. And they, inevitably, because we sold all those original buildings, they're the people who gave it up for the sake of the gospel, which is, which is pretty cool. Harry, I see that happen in multi-site context. More okay. than one of the three multi-sites comes by way of a merger. Mm-hmm. And in, in taking on the, the joining church crowd, which tends to be older right. and there a long time, some pastors are quick to dismiss them and and think they can build it on their own without them. And others uh, realize things like this berry bucket uh, model. They understand, no, if I can embrace them and value them and and win their, their um, allegiance and uh, friendship, then they can reach a whole set of people that I couldn't. They can open all yeah. kinds of things. Hmm. So I hear from a lot of leaders who are like, look, I'm with you. I understand we need to move to small groups. Our church is still small. It's 50, 100, 150 people. I realize that you can't scale it to 250, 300, 400 sustainably if one person is doing all the pastoral care. So I'm on board, but my church isn't. They expect the pastor to do everything. I don't know how to change my church. What, what advice do you have for that pastor? That, that's, there's a lot of fun in that as well as frustration. Yeah. And, and, and the fun is that uh, there are many people who would do more than they do if they felt like they had permission to do it. Hmm. And, and the question is, is the pastor someone who is a permission giver? That he hmm. enables these people to do things, that he gives them meaningful and worthwhile assignments. I remember Lyle talking one time about how important it was to give somebody a chance to assist at pouring coffee because it gave them a place to attach themselves to the congregation that was meaningful and that made a contribution. I thought there's wisdom, huge wisdom, yes, that. just is. a small part, uh, letting them play it so they can say, uh, I'm an owner here. I, I'm, a, I'm a, a host. I'm a sponsor. I'm not just a customer. I'm not just a client. Uh, I'm not just a hangers on, but I, I actually am contributing something to this work. And and a lot of times we think of people as contributing money to a work, but actually when they come and take a place in the parking lot directing cars or take a place in the in the lobby opening doors or take a place in the nursery uh, helping with the children, uh, that, that that creates meaning for them, for their life. And it allows them to, to see themselves as a part of their total work. And, and therefore, uh, every evangelistic prospect and every every uh, baptism that occurs is attributed to them and, and to the Lord, of course, mm. uh, but by the Lord, uh, because they, they began to say, well, my life has meaning, even though I'm changing nursery diapers. Uh, these folks' parents, they were baptized last week. They, they now know the Lord, and they're going to raise this child in the fear of God. And, and it, it just gives meaning to people's whole lives. And if we deny them that, if we haven't, if we haven't organized in such a way that we make it empowering 
for people to be holding an office, holding a rank. Holding. See, the, the old way of doing it is you had to elect everybody to a committee in order for them to have a place in the church. The new way of doing it is you give people an opportunity for service mm-hmm. in a team setting. And in that team setting, they, they develop a certain amount of esprit de corps. A little bit of leadership begins to emerge. If you watch that, you see who is the leader there, and you you, you bless that effort on their part. And you continue to look for ways to empower new leaders and, and create new cadres. The old way of thinking, I, I was working for the church, and I, I, I said to the young man who was the uh, executive minister, and he was brought on a little prematurely, I think, but anyway, he was in the congregation trying to be the executor, and he was efficiency-oriented mister. And I said to him, what we really are looking for here is, is more ropes that we can put on the plow so everybody can pull that plow and, and feel like they're a part of the overall harvest. And, and so what we're looking for is we're looking for, for ways to make work. And he said, but that's not efficient. I said, no, but look, we've got two services to work with. That means we have two teams before the service. We could have two teams for after the service. We have setup teams. We have takedown teams. We have children's ministry teams. We can take the children's ministry and do first and third, second and fourth, or first and second, third and fourth. We can we can cause this thing to have 80 new positions here for volunteering. <laughs> he came back to me with a chart that he was so proud of, and he said, well, I've been able to do all that work that you described in 20 positions. Hmm. And I said, I, I don't think you're hearing me. You missed the I'm point. I'm trying to give 80 people saddles to ride. I'm trying to give 80 people a place to participate in this thing. And you've just denied 60 people their opportunity to join the crowd. You never did get it. Isn't that interesting? You know what? I, I appreciate this. Both of, both of you have been writing for decades, right? I don't know how long you've been writing since the 80s, the 90s, which is great. And I want to encourage young leaders who are listening, because what you are saying and what you're reminding me of is a genre of leadership counsel that is a rare form of counsel these days. But I think back, you mentioned Lyle Schaller, member Lorne Mead. Think of some of the other pioneers in the 70s and 80s. And I read all those books as a young church leader, and I think most of them are still in print, but there was the Alvin Institute. Remember those guys? And they wrote a lot of good stuff. You guys have written some incredible stuff. And it's a wisdom and a gentleness that's missing in a lot of the literature today. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. We've been blessed to see some very good people. Lyman Coleman is one that comes to mind as well. Yes. In the area of the small group. Yep, absolutely. Bill Eason has written some really good stuff as well over the years. Any other names that come to mind? Just, you know, if people want to go and mine Amazon right now, what else would they read from that era? Gary McIntosh, M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H, wrote One Size Doesn't Fit All. And that's in a very short volume. It shows you how the role of your board, of your uh, staff, and of the congregation each changes at a different size stage from zero up to, say, 1,200. So good. So good. See, and this stuff still works. I mean, the goal is not to keep your church small. It's to reach more people and to help you scale those invisible barriers. But obviously, you need as many of the people that you have on board to come on board to help you accomplish that. Now, let me ask you another question that a lot of people who are embracing change in a small church would face, which is, so is everybody going to come on board at the end, or is some attrition inevitable in your view? That's a good question. Uh, There will be losses. Mm -hmm. 
are necessary losses along the way because there are some people who whose need for strokes cannot be met under a different condition than relating personally to the senior minister. Yeah. And one and and one of the painful choices that a senior minister makes as he goes along through his growth is the recognition that the intimacy that he loved in those early days is simply no longer achievable with the same number of people. Mm -hmm. And a dream dies in his heart as the shepherd can no longer pet every sheep, but has to hand the sheep that needs to be petted to an associate or an assistant. Very, very tough emotional call to make. It is hard. We didn't mention John Maxwell, who's written a lot of great books. And one of the things he observes is at any given point, X percent of people are exiting your church and X percent are coming in. Mm -hmm. And it's your role and privilege as a leader to kind of shape what kind of people come in the door and and what kind of exit. And if there's any good news in the sadness of someone leaving is they may be hurt and sad, but they'll probably go to another church. Yes. Uh, Those who haven't come in the door uh, may not see Jesus at the end of their life. Mm-hmm. And with stakes like that, the tilt becomes back to this harvest mentality and harvest outlook. I suppose I recommend John Maxwell's work as much as I recommend anybody because yeah. of his emphasis on leadership development. But when I consulted with him back at the Skyline Church, he gave me the privilege of coming in and seeing his work from the inside out. And the stories that I took away from there were, were transformative. I remember he had a patriarch or a matriarch in his church and and she was in one of the focus groups that I conducted and she had a very, very stressed, sour look on her face. Hmm. And, and I thought, well, I'll go ahead and lance this boil and we'll, we'll deal with it while we're here. And I said, uh, you don't appear to be very happy. Uh, is, is there anything you'd like to say about how you feel about John Maxwell as the leader of this church? Oh, she says, I hate, what he is doing to our church. And then she went on to a little tirade of all the things that he had done, the changes that he had made and the, and the, the way it, it terribly upset her and her friends. And, um, and I was a little bit cynical and I said, would you like to tell me how you really feel about John Maxwell? <laughs> because I thought, well, she's just bending her spleen. Let me let it all come out and we'll doctor it all at once. And she stopped on a dime. I mean, she's, looked at me and she said, oh, I love him to death. <laughs> and I said, what? How is that consistent with what you've just described? Oh, she says, I don't like what he's done to our church, but I love him. He always has time to pray for me. Wow. And I said, what does that look like? And she said, no matter how busy he is or how pressed he is, as I'm going out the door on Sunday morning, if I'm distressed about something and I say, pastor, I need your prayers, do you know he stops right that moment and says a prayer for me right at that moment? And she says, I just love him. And and so here's this person who's kicking and screaming, being dragged into a future of a larger church who is nevertheless feeling loved by her pastor. What do you do with that? It's the most outstanding single case that I can cite from all the years I've been consulting. Isn't that, And so ultimately she was following him. She was absolutely following him. And, and Carl, this this validates the emphasis in the How to Break the 200 Barrier book and 400 and 800 and, and so forth, that, that as the care quotient happens 
for the saints that they are engaged then in the vision of the church. Uh, what what the fear is 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 that growth will mean less care and the the naive assumption by some by well that less care by my pastor because they don't see alternatives of care by other uh, authorized uh, caregivers such as small group leaders. Well, these long-term members do experience a change in the method by which they receive care. Mm-hmm. And it's an unfamiliar method. And therefore, some of them are quite upset by that. And and some make the jump and some don't. Yeah, I, I, I consult in enough cases. I've been in, in cities where I will have a large church uh, client and a small church client. And I will meet. I mean, there's a revolving door between these churches. <laughs> From small church, people are going to a large church for the excellence of this or that or the vision or whatever. And from the large church come people looking for the more intimate handholding from the senior pastor that they could not hope for in the large church. And I, true. I can name dozens of people that I've watched make that journey back and forth between the large and the small. Carrie, you mentioned a minute ago the young pastors rising up. And yeah. is this uh, congruent with their thinking? What I often observe is they get the idea of developing leaders but they don't get the idea of developing grandchildren from that. In other words, Mm. they'll lead someone, but they don't understand that their success is not in who they lead, but in who those leaders lead. And if, Mm. if they as a senior leader are not producing grandchildren and great grandchildren, then they're really not developing people because they're not teaching them to do what they've done. It's the second Timothy two, two train others who train others, who train others, who train others. No, that's a really good point. That becomes a reproducing church. Go ahead, Carl. Well, that's uh, the DNA of the small group uh, sets that into either a leadership replication mode or into a uh, pastoral care club mode. Right. Because if, if when the, the, the group is organized. The leader is commissioned to develop within that group the two or three people that are necessary to spin off another group within a season. If that's if that's part of that original formula, so that the searching for gifted people and the sharing of the responsibility and group leadership and so forth is is a part of that original franchise, then you 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 enter a multiplication area, and mm-hmm. uh, you know. There's a, this huge movement now going across the, the continent on the exponential theme, the idea of churches that plant churches and then multiply churches. Uh, that, that's, that has to be true in the small group. It has to be the, the small group has to be a multiplier small group, uh, one that will intimately care for its people with the awareness that if they're properly cared for, they will develop into group leading capable people. And which and, and the, the mark of their success is not, oh, we met for 50 weeks this last year. Yeah. The mark of their success is we spun off two, two groups or two leaders or right. whatever. And in the process, they were cared for. In the process, they had meaningful connection, meaningful relationships and so on. What are Because 200 is such a big thing. We're going to get to 400, 800, 1,000. But uh, what are some of the other barriers, the invisible barriers that face leaders who um, are trying to help their church reach more than 200 people on a weekend. They have a facilities issue they have to, to address at some point. Okay. The, what do you... the, the idea that you have to lead a congregation into facilities that are adequate 
to support the programs that you're calling for. Yeah. And that has to do with the nurseries and that has to do with the, the parking space. A lot of people assume that the sanctuary is the pinch point, but it, it may not be. The parking mm -hmm. lot may be the pinch point. The nursery may be the pinch point. The foyer crowdedness where people are trying to get from one to another may be the pinch point. Somewhere there's a pinch point that has to be identified and dealt with. Yeah, that you know, and sometimes we just overlook that. And you can grow in a dying building for a season. We've done that. You know, we filled up a centuries-old building, but we just knew that was going to last for a year or two. Like people are not going to keep coming and putting their kids in bad facilities that are moldy or, you know, bathrooms that really have seen their better day. We're going to have to, we're going to have to do something and that requires money and vision and resources. Anything else at 200 for leaders who are listening? So pastoral care is a huge one. The pastor being responsible for everything, not developing any leaders, um, uh, the multiplying strategy of small groups, getting people to do their pastoral care that way, a facilities pinch point, whether that's parking or foyer or whatever that happens to be. Um, that's a pretty good list. Anything else come to mind before we move on? Oh, yes. Uh, I think uh, in all of churches that hope to grow, there is one one critical key factor we have to watch out for. Mm -hmm. And that is um, who it is that we're tr making sure that we're solving problems for them. Uh, and I'm speaking now of the parents of preschoolers. Okay. If if the parents of preschoolers are facing difficulties that the church leadership is not acknowledging and are facing problems that are not being solved, then you're throwing away your long-term growth stability because the parents of a preschooler are a 20-year member, an active 20-year member, because they're going to raise their children with you. And if they find that you're treating their child well and you're giving them the support that parents need, uh, that they will be with you year after year after year after year, and they will be the disciple makers within the, the, the family system that are essential for mature Christian adults. So one of the questions that I'm constantly looking out for uh, in every size congregation is, how are you people treating your next generation? How are you treating the parents of these little tots? Mm. Uh, do I see happy moms and dads coming in? Do I see lots of... Uh, children's uh, refurbishing and so forth. I, and I've seen churches who, who put this on the back burner and they suffered for it because they age very quickly. You have to you have to constantly be asking yourself, if we have to determine what part of our church to renew first, where should we do it? I push them, I push them toward the nursery. I just ask them, you know, what what's going on? What does a what does a mom who carries in a baby face when she uh, drives onto your, your church campus? So that's everything from facility to curriculum to how they're greeted to the registration process to the quality of the program to the quality of the care provided. I, I parked. I parked in the parking lot of Urban Church. Ahead of me, too far for me to catch up without running, was a young woman wearing heels and carrying a baby. Mm. She walked from her car across the street and up a flight of stairs, about eight stairs, the level of the church lobby. I tagged along beside her, or behind her, and, and decided I would watch to see how much help she got. Before I could get there, uh, she had to encounter the door. There was no one at the door. She had mm. to shoulder open the door in order to get in. Wow. I followed her across the lobby to the nursery, and we went in. And again, the doors were towed, but there was no one to help her. Mm. She had to 
multiple open doors while managing a, a baby uh, and a, a diaper bag and what have you. And she gets inside and she and she puts her baby on the counter and the, the wallpaper was rain stained and moldy. Oh. Unbelievable. <laughs> and I was shocked because this is a wealthy church. And I thought, how is it possible that a church with this wealth and, and this prominence one of the larger of its denominations or could possibly have a, a nursery so well-placed off the lobby and so pitifully maintained. So a little later, I found one of the matriarchs hmm. and I asked her if she'd had her child in the nursery when she was coming out. Oh, yes, she said. As a matter of fact, she says, we redecorated that nursery and made it the finest in town. I said, well, come and, and show it to me. And we went back there and it was the nursery that she had decorated 30 years before. And when she saw the mold, she almost screamed. She cringed. And she says, oh, no. What have they done? I said, what have they not done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But Nothing's been changed. I have to write a single thing to the church to correct that. Before my next visit, that whole suite had been remodeled and updated. Because this woman had the moxie to make a change. And all she had to do was shown what was not there that she had imagined was there from 30 years before. But for some reason, because her children and grandchildren were not in that church, she hadn't seen that nursery. I love the emphasis in this conversation on creating allies in the church, because I think the assumption can be that, well, the matriarch's going to be an enemy of change. She probably hadn't been in that nursery in 30 years, right? I mean, why okay. are you going to go into the nursery if you're not serving there? And good for you. Good for you. Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears and let's look at 400 to 600. So you're past 200. You're not doing all the pastoral care anymore. Uh, are you doing any pastoral care past 200? And if so, what does it look like? Absolutely. But you are not a single pastor church anymore. You're, you're going to have some staff by now. Okay. When you're that size, you've got at least one or two pastoral staff members that are working alongside of you. Okay. And you also have an issue of governance because with that many people, you're going to have people who want to assist you in governing and making decisions for the church in order to keep the money flowing and to keep the decisions properly authorized. And so you're going to find another change, and that is you're, as a pastor, you're having to manage a staff. It's a modest staff, but it's a staff. And you're also having to manage a board who think they have a right to tell you how the church ought to be run. Yeah. Warren, what are you seeing at four to 600 when it comes to staff and elders? Well, the danger is that you hire the staff and they perceive of themselves as hired hands to do ministry. In other mm. words, they have to go through the whole uh, transformation as well. In other words, they see themselves as caregivers, not the makers of caregivers, right. of, of leaders rather than the maker of leaders. And, and that's a whole world of difference. Yeah. And I, I don't want people to miss that. These are really important points. So as you bring on staff, one of the ways I hear it phrased in leadership is it can be because you're so overwhelmed. Once you hit 200, it gets really to be too much for one person. And again, you say it in your book, really talented leader might be able to take it to 300 or whatever, but you're going to burn out or the church is going to get tired of you because you're not doing a good job. It's a brilliant insight. Um, but then you tend to hire doers if you're not careful, right? People who are like, well, you go visit in the hospital because I can't, or you go run this Bible study because I can't, and you really haven't solved the problem. You've just procrastinated. 
right? Explain that just so because that is not self-evident to every leader. That's almost the rule that it's not self-evident. You see, people <laughs> don't come into the ministry in order not to do ministry. They come into the ministry to do ministry. <laughs> Good they point. didn't love sheep and the idea of being respected by and honored by sheep, that they wouldn't be in the ministry. So the, the whole notion of Paul is the care of people. And there's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, all the scripture is very, very clear. We're called shepherds, you know, pastors and so forth. So I, I have no I have no problem with a person wanting to love on people. Yeah. Uh, but it's when you love being loved on by people to the point that you no longer attend to issues of scale, that is to the, the enlargement of the Christian community, that I have the issue. Hmm. So it's too early for us to settle down and just enjoy our time here on earth. There's an apostolic need for addressing and an evangelistic need for addressing more people and, and bringing more people into the privileges of, of knowing Christ. Yeah. So if that, if that vision of, of the lostness of mankind is not maintained, our, our comforts will turn out to be our condemnation in the great day. Hmm. And, well and in keeping with that idea, it, once you now have a staff, you assume like, well, somebody knows how to lead a staff. And that's a skill set to be I did not. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's kind of like your, great, your best car salesperson. You say, oh, well, let's put them as manager of the other car salespeople mm. and sign there and they may or may not and likewise the lead pastor uh, i love the way uh, paul young cho would say i i have to have a vision i have to be pregnant with a vision of where god wants to take the church next you have to you have to go there in your own mind before you can lead the congregation there. And you have to see yourself as a leader of leaders of leaders and to develop people on that scale or else you just settle into an easy plateau. And the 400 size plateau is a very precarious one. That's not an easy level to stay at. Tell me why. Why is it precarious? It's, it's easier to fall back than it is to go forward. Hmm. It's easier to stabilize around things that you're comfortable doing. You see, what happens is that the, the the likelihood that there will be stronger leaders on your board than you have on your staff is is, is apparent everywhere. Wow. Uh, businessmen who have learned leadership, uh, community leaders who have learned leadership, and have therefore found themselves elected to board positions, uh, actually have a better idea in many cases how to lead an organization than the, the pastoral staff does. And the easiest thing for a pastor to do is to surrender his leadership to those board members. Mm. And, and instead of solving the problems that are involved among the board members, is to ask board members to solve those problems. And you see it constantly in the minutes of a meeting. Uh, the, the pastor asks so-and-so and so-and-so to get together and meet with the youth pastor to help supervise that program because of some of the conflicts that we've heard. Yeah. You see those, those issues. So the, the boards wind up basically intervening constantly to stop the staff from infighting or to eliminate problems that the staff are creating or the lack of leadership in staff is creating out in the organization. And that is not the role of a healthy board in your view? Well, it's the most common role of a board because the pastors don't accept responsibility for leading the staff that right. they hire. And, and the board members sometimes are, are more organizationally acute than the pastors are. Yeah. 
but but that doesn't scale, right? Like you can't you nope. can't have a board man a board never manages a church of over a thousand, and exactly I think right. that's the point. It just can't, right? And yet, I think I think the dilemma that you indicate is very real. By the time we hit four hundred to six hundred, and again, you guys wrote the handbook I've carried with me for all these years. Our board had changed. It was not the matriarchs and patriarchs predominantly, and not all of them were on the board, but that doesn't matter. And it was increasingly business leaders. And those business leaders, often entrepreneurial business leaders, they love to know the details and they love to get in the weeds. This is, this is fun for them. And one of the challenges I had as we grew past 400, 600, 800 was realizing they can't be micromanaging. And I want to, I'm just going to give you a very real pain point for me because I, I, you know, I read it, but you learn it differently than you read it because you're living it, right? Was I would, I would give them briefings and the briefing went from like an email to a two page memo to almost a book to almost I had to write a, a tome for them for every meeting because the issues kept getting more and more complicated and you're only meeting for two hours a month. Like it doesn't scale. And then what are you going to do? You're going to meet every week as a board? Are you going to meet every night as a board? Like if you expect them to take on the responsibility of staff and to really be down in the weeds, uh, first of all, board members are too busy for that. Secondly, it doesn't work. And then you get into numbers like we just passed a $2 million budget. Let's be honest, who really understands a $2 million budget? Like at the end of the day, business people just look at top line, bottom line. They look at percentages. They look at ratios. Like you've got to get better at having the staff lead the church and the board really guard the mission. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, and that's where, again, the 400 barrier is so precarious because mm. it's easy to think, oh, we're like the church of 200 where the board is hands on at every point. Uh, whereas the board is moving towards a policy board with a staff leadership. And right. that be, that will be finished or, or, or more defined when you're at 800 or so. But but earlier on, it's it's precarious. Very awkward. Oh, and should we, should we name something that's assumed here, but we haven't talked about it explicitly? By this point, four to 600, congregational leadership is dead, correct? Like you're not going to a congregational meeting every three weeks to get permission to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, you may have an annual congregational meeting or a key congregational meeting, but this idea that, well, we don't know what the congregation thinks of that, that is long gone by this stage, isn't it? Not all meetings are annual at best. <laughs> if you have to, right? <laughs> but, but when you say we don't know what the congregation thinks, if if your board is doing its job, mm. then they do have a perception of where the congregation is. And the, the larger the church, the more there should be no surprises at the board level. That you, you don't take a vote on something that you don't know what the outcome is going to be, because especially in that context, yeah. someone always loses. So you you do want to have the pulse of the congregation at every level, but you you can't get that pulse by having an actual congregational meeting more than at most once a year. Other churches handle it differently, and again, we're not the largest church by any stretch. But you know, we've been using for years now what we call our ministry team representative group, which is about thirty of our top volunteers. And uh, we meet with them quarterly and we just give them feedback. We give, let them give us feedback. And that kind of keeps us and our board 
on the pulse of the congregation if for somehow we've missed it. And again, you start mobilizing hundreds of volunteers, and you'll know what's really going on in your church. You'll know if you listen. If you listen. And listening is work. Yeah. Listening is work, yeah. Yeah. Okay, anything else at 400 to 600? So it's staff and it's board. Those are, those are two of the big changes. You get bigger by getting smaller. Yeah. And, and if in direct proportion to what percent of the congregation finds their identity in a smaller group, team, service group, or something other than the whole, uh, predicts the healthiness of that transition. Right. Don't think of a crowd. Think of small groups of people working together for a common mission, vision, and strategy, right? So there's a positive at being at this awkward size, uh, and that is that uh, most denominational programs, uh, publishing, literature, whatever, uh, tend to work well in this area. Hmm. Uh, they, assume, they assume lay leaders. Uh, they spell things out pretty well. Um, and that's, that's what people at the 200 level aspire to be. They don't know how awkward or unstable it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they know that they have more budget to work with and they have more people to work with. And, and it looks good to them. And, and it doesn't look insurmountable. It doesn't look like the Church of 800 with all of the efficiencies and the business and the leadership that has to be developed. So in terms of a, a lay-led church with a lay board and lay volunteers and adequate program, say, support from the denomination, uh, the, those those are very attractive churches to look at, uh, unless somebody gets the idea that you're supposed to do more with the resources and responsibilities that church gives you, and then that pushes you in that very uncomfortable notion of, you mean God's going to hold us accountable for doing something with all this stuff we have? Yeah. Cheers to get here. And we're, you know, oh, this is so good. Um, well, then let's talk about 800 or 1,000. Because that's that's a big barrier, and there's a range, right? What what are the barriers when you're going to try to reach more than a thousand people on a weekend? You cannot you cannot separate vision and facilities development. Mm. Two are both essential because you're no longer at a place where you can just get by by squeezing in a more a few more people. It right. just doesn't work. You can't set up another row of chairs and make it all work. Uh, the fluctuations in your attendance will be larger than a medium-sized church. Hmm. Uh, you have uh, 800 there one one week, and you have 1,200 another week. Yeah. That's a 400-person fluctuation. That's uh, two acres of cars solidly <laughs> packed. Wow! That variation, you say, uh, it, it, it's it's a reality that all over the country, uh, people come to come to church in two cars. I mean, two people per car. Yep. And, and, and you can get 100 cars on an acre, roughly, hmm. uh, given the landscape rules and all that are attending. So you, you come in, you say, well, what's an acre worth? Well, an acre is worth 100 cars or 200 people. Well, if you're going to put 200 people on your premises, then you've got to have a, a, an acre of paved parking somewhere. Wow. And you, you try to push past that, and you're just kidding yourself because you have people getting angry with each other and not finding parking spaces, coming early, coming late. Uh, parking on other people's driveways. I mean, the, the, you have to you have to face the fact we're now big time enough that we've got to we've got to pay for our own parking, and mm-hmm. and so you've got to solve the building problems. Then when it comes, as Warren pointed out, uh, it comes to the lobby areas. Uh, we're, we're now we're now uh, specifying for churches lobby areas that are as large as the assembly areas. 
Wow. In some cases, larger. And because the, the people coming out and milling around and locating their kids and doing all the things that are involved require enormous square footages. And, and churches that don't meet those don't meet the public's expectation for comfort and, and for availability to the coffee pots and all the things that are associated with that. So, so to deal with a, a uh, facilities development mindset is, is required by these larger churches to break that, that thousand barrier. Hmm. So we come in and do it. We do an assessment of, uh, of uh, you know, what are their facilities and, and what does that look like? They, they have to they have to manage things with the appropriate specialties on their staff. You have to have some actual business administration skill. Your HR department now, I mean, you're going to be running what it, it takes. Uh, it takes fairly uh, uh, 50 or 60 people attending. Uh, you're going to have a staff member. So when you start looking at that, you're talking about staff of dozens of people, and and when you have staff of dozens of people, you have uh, you have HR concerns, all the way from health insurance to uh, uh, the the possibility that you may have to face a termination of some people, and they won't mm-hmm. be pleasant, and uh, you may have to defend yourself from a wrongful termination lawsuit. I mean, you're you're into an area now where you actually have to know something about administration. You need it's systems. Not- well, you, systems you have to and, establish and, systems and skills, yes. And many churches will develop a growth pathway. You know, how do you go from being a total pagan to hmm. if God should lead, you know, a, a leader on staff? But those growth pathways and leadership uh, development pipelines, whatever they're called, sometimes the church leadership forgets that certain people hit their sweet spot and max out and, and cannot or, or should not even continue tracking to a new level. And there has to be a way, you know, way back when everybody had the pastor's ear. And then as the church grew, you now have kind of a new layer in between because everybody can't keep having the pastor's ear. Right. Likewise, now in this larger size, you're dealing with staff with that issue, that, that the staff could lead a, a group or department this size or lead so many leaders but doesn't know how to lead leaders of leaders of leaders and and has hit their sweet spot. So you're forever working to develop your staff, but you're also realizing that some people can keep growing with the church and others can't. Is that pretty typical that the staff that were really effective at 400, 500 sometimes are not as effective when your church hits 1,000? Because I see that pattern repeated over and over again. Rule of thumb is 50% of them cannot make the grade. Wow. You, you, you see, a, a church that's running at seven or 800 uh, will have a full-time professional in each of the primary driver seats. Sure. Uh, youth, uh, music, worship, whatever, uh, pastoral care, hospital visitation, uh, sermons, teaching pastors, and so forth. And, and there, there's just a full array of, of nice, comfortable, efficient, effective positions that, again, make 800 a very attractive ceiling or 900 a very attractive ceiling and a lot of professionalism available. But the people who are able actually to make that transition to the to the staff driven process and, and the, the lead pastor mm-hmm. or team, only about half of those people actually survive that hurdle wow. in our experience. And, wow. and they do better to to reposition themselves into some other place 
than to attempt to make it because they'll be absolutely miserable. They're mm. not getting the strokes and kudos that they need. So once you hit a thousand, you've solved all your problems, right? There's no more church problems beyond a thousand. It's a soft thousand. It's it's eight hundred to twelve hundred churches in that range. Yeah, uh, all suffer the same kinds of issues. What's beyond twelve hundred? What what are because we do have people who lead larger churches listening for sure, and and we'll talk about multi-site before we're done too. I forgot There's to include that. There's whole literature that they have available to them, and and they don't even speak the same language to the people the smaller churches speak. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too different. I, I can, I can be in the men's room of a, a pastoral conference and just overhear the guys as they're washing their hands and, and hear them talk about what impressed them. And I can tell you what size their churches are. I mean, really it's two <laughs> different worlds. The, the, the size 2000 attendance has been somewhat arbitrarily labeled. Now you are at mega church size. Yeah. And, Interestingly, there are 1,650 such churches across the U.S. and Canada, Hmm. which is only half of 1% of all the Protestant churches. And yet, and yet, last weekend, of those who went to a Protestant church, that represents almost 10% of the churchgoers. So of this 2,000 and higher group, why was the name number 2000 chosen for mega church it's because by that point you there is no way to avoid a level of organizational complexity multiple layers on your staff multiple uh, specialized department for management and leadership that's a complexity that you just don't have at a smaller size level yeah and and by the way the staff for those size churches are not created in seminaries. Half of those size churches are recruited from the business community of the church members who are long-term loyalists and long-term effective spiritual people. Do you see that changing at all? Are any seminaries or, you know, professional pastoral education institutions starting to take the larger church more seriously? I don't don't see that. Well, they take it seriously because it's it's so high visibility. Uh, I, I don't see... I don't see the preparation doing any good because there's no way that the church community can create the sophistication of management that the business community uh, puts together. So an MBA is probably more valuable than an MDiv. If you if you need an HR person, you hire it from the local um, automobile plant or whatever. Right. I mean, because you've got guys in your church and on your board that have reached the the halftime mark. Right. And are now looking for significant things to do, and you bring them on board, and you get a much better quality of performance and, and person. Carrie, one development is this idea of internships and residencies. Mm-hmm. And we surveyed churches of a thousand and higher, and seventy-four percent said yes to the following question: Are do you have an internship or residency program, whatever you call it? Yeah. To develop future leaders? Question mark. And 74% said yes, and which, which says that churches are taking very seriously the internal leadership development. But the interesting thing is that seminaries, to come back to your direct question, yeah. are perking up their ears and saying, well, 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 you know, maybe we should tie in our internship program to this pathway that XYZ Church has already created. And so it is creating about half of the churches in our survey of several hundred churches, leadnet.org slash intern, if you want to download it for free, um, 
said we do it in partnership with some kind of academic uh, credit. Oh, um, that's great. But that's more the church creating something and the school coming to partner with it. Well, and well, I, I go ahead. Go ahead another fe- there's another feature there. Uh, on online distance education is making a lot of things cross those lines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You you can you can outtake a person out of the business community who loves God and loves people and put them in there and, and sign them up for liberty or whoever you want to, any distance learning group, and you can you can fill in all the theological gaps by uh, remote education, distance learning. And, and that's what we're doing. It's funny, all of our systems people have come. One, the first one, I hired her from Pepsi. And that was 10 years ago. And she was absolutely brilliant at what she did. She served with us for a few years. Next one used to be a teacher, came from another church and student ministry world. And then our current one actually uh, came from sales and marketing. And uh, again, all people from the church who, who we recruited from the marketplace. And we're doing more and more marketplace hires all the time. And Carrie, you represent the trend that the larger the church, the more likely you are to home grow your staff or hire from within. In part, that's because they the, the biggest problem that occurs for, for dismissing a staff that you've hired from the outside is it wasn't a good fit. Yeah. Well, what you're saying is they don't get our DNA or their family couldn't adjust to the area or whatever. Well, hey, if you're hiring a longtime member of the church who loves the church and gets the DNA and the family is happy, You've already solved that issue. But uh, to the point that was made earlier, you're also bringing people in, whether it's from the Boy Scout leadership world, volunteer world, or the business world, military, who get the idea of leadership development. And you can take people who get that idea and add the theological training that they may need easier than starting with someone who's got good theology and, and trying to help them get the leadership curve. Yeah, it's a good point that seminary is easy to train on the back end than the really, honestly, leadership organizational skills you need as as part of a larger church. And, um, you know, sometimes it's it's hard for leaders to make all these transitions. Now, in your new book, I mean, in 1994, there was what, maybe one or two multi-site churches in America? Like, there, there were a handful. You can count them on one or two hands. Um, Chartwell being one of the first, where Jeff Brody, our lead pastor from Conexus, uh, was at, not in 94, I think he was in school, but you know what I mean. And uh, multi-site's a big part of it. Anything you would say to multi-site church leaders, because Warren, as you know, one of the trends in multi-site, because you've written books on it, is that uh, it used to be for mega churches, and then it was for churches of a thousand, and now, you know, you hear of churches rural, you know, they're 200, 300 people, and they have multiple campuses. Any any uh, notes for multi-site leaders or church leaders who want to become multi-site? I'll just briefly say that we that's one of the sections we expanded and updated because right. that's definitely uh, been a development and, and a, a very important uh, strategic one at that. It's easier with technology today to become even video multi-site yeah. because the equipment is so cheap and, and the, the benefits are so obvious. And, and it's, it's so affordable and so forth. So we're, we're limited not no longer by technology, but by, by imagination and by perseverance. Love it. And we're, we're watching a number of, of developments um, around the country that are, um, let, let's say, exploding with potential. But the, 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 the factor that I find most intriguing is that leadership, as Maxwell would define it, uh, leadership itself 
when it, where it is found, is no longer bound by a campus. Mm. It is able to stretch out, and it, it can go international. Uh, it can, it, it's bound within leaders uh, within language units, basically. But it's not, it's not, it's not facilities bound anymore. So now, if a person has the imagination to do so, and has the leadership moxie to do so, and is willing to operate with with a vision, and then um, handoff. What we what we can see is is new forms of church coming along that are not mm. constrained by by the geographical distance that people have to travel to get to a worship site. It's it's a very exciting time to be alive. It is a really exciting time to be alive. I mean, even this podcast is a great you know example of a technology that really wasn't around a decade ago that has the potential for very little money to impact a lot of people. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for the church to really take that seriously. And Carrie, let me say, I listen to uh, several podcasts, but I probably listen to your podcast more consistently than any other. And here you are, you know, way up in snowy at the moment. Uh, Unfortunately, it uh, is very snowy right now. <laughs> how many people know where Barry, Ontario is? But, yeah. but you're influencing people literally all over the world. Well, I appreciate that. And it's it's humbling and it's crazy at the same time. I actually live, I always say north of Toronto because no one knows where I actually live. And our church is in Barrie, but I live in Oro Medante, a place nobody has ever heard of. And like I have three neighbors. But hey, here we are. And you guys are where you are. I'm where I am. And our listeners are where they are. And that's the that's the real joy of the church, right? This is the Roman road system of the 21st century. It is the printing press of the Reformation, and uh, we get an opportunity to take the gospel pretty much anywhere. I love that, that, you know, our biggest boundary right now is our imagination. Like, what what can we do? Anything else you guys want to say? This has been just such a, a joy for me to be able to do this. It feels like, uh, like, you know, this is something that's been 20 years in the making, and what an honor and a privilege for me to be able to interview you guys, because you've been so influential in my life and the journey of so many other leaders. Anything else you want to say as we sort of close out our, our conversation today? Well, Kara, you've asked great questions. And, and yes, I believe the book is a great book, evidenced by the fact the publisher says, hey, it's still doing well, just updated. We'll <laughs> but, but the book itself, even, even a vision uh, of, of a greater harvest is not alone, is not enough. So often what Leadership Network represents that I work for is Pastors need to hang out with others who are just a little bit ahead of them mm -hmm. to discover, hey, I'm normal in having these questions and challenges. Hey, I see others taking big steps of faith. You know, I could do that, too, uh, to have a peer group uh, to go through these growth barriers with is so, so vital. That's very true. Thank you. That's excellent. Gary, the only improvement that I can think uh, would be for you to adopt an alias that respells your last name in more phonetic terms <laughs> so that we don't have to become Europeans in order to get find you and, and searching oh, for it. Oh, I appreciate it. Everyone asks. It's Dutch, just so you know. But the good news, the upside of that is you can own whatever internet real estate you want because no one's competing for Newhoff or Carry Much these days. So thank you to Google, too, for continuing. If you come even close, that you'll find me. And, and recently, we bought uh, leadlikeneverbefore.com. So that'll take you directly to my content. And I think most people know how to spell that. But I appreciate that, uh, Carl and Warren. Carl George, Warren Bird, 
Uh, the book is called How to Break Church Growth Barriers. And what do you, do you guys have a release date for it right now? April 4th, 2017. Uh, it will be on Amazon perhaps a little sooner and at your local uh, book dealer or um, Barnes & Noble or anywhere else you buy. Well, that's incredible. I'm so excited for this to go into the hands of, of the next generation. And uh, thank you both so very much for being on the podcast today. Oh, that was a thrill. Man, that was a thrill. And I mean, I know I've talked about it a lot, but it really is. You know, when you get to be, you know, the guy reading the book and then you actually meet the authors and get to talk to them and help other church leaders, that that's what makes waking up in the morning and doing this fun. So thanks to all of you for making it fun too. Really appreciate it. Hey, if you haven't subscribed, do it because uh, next week we are coming back with, are you ready for this? <laughs> Adam Weber. Adam Weber just released a new book, and I talked to him about that, but I also I also get through a few myths with him because, you know, you probably heard all the excuses, right? We've talked about them before on this podcast. Churches in this region don't grow. Mainline denominations are dying. Well, Adam Weber leads one of the fastest growing churches in the country, the fastest growing church in his denomination. It's become this large church that meets in two states, and he's done it all as a young leader in a mainline denomination. Can you believe that? Here's an excerpt from my conversation with Adam Weber. So one of the hardest things that I went through, the first three years, something that most people don't know about Embrace, is three years in, we are 100 people in worship. Mm. And we're almost closed three years in. Wow. So, because so, we weren't growing. Church planners, listen up. Yeah, I mean, we weren't growing. And, and that's a part of my story that I wouldn't wish on anybody, but now yeah. I'm so grateful for Adam is an amazing guy. I so enjoyed my time with him and so thankful that he said yes to being a guest on this podcast. So again, if you subscribe, it just shows up in your phone and your devices automatically. And once again, it's free. So uh, make sure you subscribe. That way you'll get it next Tuesday. You don't even have to think about it. It's just going to be there. And if you haven't yet checked out trainedup.org, do that and make sure you join me this month for the conferences that I will be at RethinkLeadership.com. And then uh, the last few tickets for our very first ever Canadian Church Leaders Conference at CanadianChurchLeadersConference.com. Hey, we're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. Thanks so much, leaders. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. And I do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.